So how you answer, how I answer life's biggest questions is called a worldview. It's a view of how you see the world. It's a way that you explain the nature of reality. Many people have a worldview that is incomplete. So they have explanations for some of the big questions in life, but not all of them. And many people have a worldview that is logically incoherent. In other words, aspects of their worldview contradict each other or are demonstrably untrue or have no evidence to suggest that they're anything more than wishful thinking. I'll give you a few examples. Very popular beliefs are things like, I believe if you're a good person, things generally work out. Sounds nice. The problem with that is you're essentially saying that the three billion people on planet Earth who are in poverty are all not good people. That's the problem of that worldview. Or thinking, you know, I think if you generally have a positive mindset, then you can manifest for yourself a better reality. You can draw things like money to yourself and and health and prosperity and all these things. Sounds great, except the flip side of that is then according to that logic, what we should be doing in impoverished countries is not sending bags of rice. We should really be sending Tony Robbins so that he can go over there and teach these people to get themselves out of this poverty mindset and start living with an abundance philosophy. Then the whole problem would be cured. We should have a whole United Nations department dedicated to training up young Tony Robbinses so that everyone can learn to have an abundance mindset and then we can cure poverty. That's what we should be doing. So we have these worldviews, especially here in the West, that, that we embrace because they sound nice, but the second you put them under a little bit of scrutiny, it becomes a that they're logically incoherent. And so today I want to talk with you about the Christian worldview, the way Christianity explains and describes reality. This is a description of the way things actually are. It's a description of the truth. And if you're interested in learning the truth of why things are the way that they are, you have to be committed to the actual truth, not the truth that you think should be, not the truth that you wish to be true, but whatever the actual truth is. It's like stepping on your bathroom scale. If you actually wanna know what you weigh, you actually gotta step on that thing and not doctor it in some way. The truth is what it is, not what you wish it to be. Now some might say, "Well, well Jeff, I think what you really mean is you mean your truth, right? Because it would be pretty arrogant of you to claim that this is the truth when it's really just your truth. But in order to hold to that idea, that idea of relative truth, that something can be true for you and and not true for me, what you're actually making is the claim that nothing is truly knowable. That's what's behind that idea. You're saying, well, Jeff, you can't actually know that this is true. The philosophical term for this is epistemology. It's the study of the limits of knowledge. What can we actually know? And so when people say, well, that's your truth, but my truth might be different, what they're really saying is there is no truth, or at least there's no truth that we can know. And the problem with that is that every single day in our lives, we do things that disprove this idea that we can't know things for certain. You get up in the middle of the night and you go to the bathroom you go in a certain direction in your house. Why? Because you, you know where it is. 
When you start sitting down on the toilet, you know that it's there. You're not just like, man, I hope this thing works out. Ah. You're not guessing. You actually know. You drive around the world using GPS-based maps because we can know where things are located. We seek medical attention because there are things that we can know about our health and how the human body works. There are a million different actions that are taken every single day that prove without a shadow of a doubt that we can know things for sure and we can know that there are things that are true. And when it comes to the nature of reality, there are things that are true. Not true for you, but not true for me. Not true for me, but not true for you. Things that are true for everyone because they're genuinely true. Now in our politically correct society, someone will inevitably say, well, well, it's incredibly arrogant of you, Jeff, to claim that 90% of the world is wrong about their religion or beliefs. That that sort of makes you a bigot. And while I would actually agree with you about the 90% part of that statement, I think it has more to do with math than it does with bigotry. So just think about this. Some religions teach that Jesus is the son of God, like Christianity. Other religions completely deny that. But isn't it obvious that on just that issue, somebody must be right and somebody must be wrong? There's no getting around it. The great monotheistic faiths understand God as a distinct individual person, whereas some Eastern religions see God as the impersonal sum of everything put together. Is it not clear that that if there is a God, both of these notions cannot be true at the same time? God cannot be one personal individual and yet also the sum of everything in a vague sense at the same time. However you slice it, clearly massive numbers of people are wrong on on one side of this. Again, there's no getting around it. When anyone dies, they might go to heaven, they might go to hell, or they might be reincarnated, or they might disappear into nothing at all. But even a child can see that they cannot do all of those things at the same time. Multitudes, even the majority, must be wrong about their beliefs. And and that's not bigotry, that's just simple math. We're not talking about small, meaningless differences where one says, Jesus had a beard, and another says, no, I think he shaved. We're talking about the heart of things, the foundations, the deep structures, the most basic claims about reality that religions make. So then, even though it's, it's trendy today to say that all religions are essentially the same, they're about being a good person, they all lead to the same place, it turns out, again, when you, you just look a little bit deeper, you just put that statement under the microscope a little bit, that cannot be true at all. What really strikes us as we begin to examine different beliefs is how different they all are. When it comes to the most important things, each religion's picture of reality is quite different from the others. That's why there are different religions in the first place. Now every worldview has to give answers and explain four areas of reality. So these are the the biggest questions in life and if you wanna have a belief system, your belief system has to explain these four things. Firstly, it has to explain creation. Secondly, it has to explain the fall and I'll explain what all these are in a minute. Thirdly, it has to talk about redemption And fourthly, it has to talk about restoration. Creation is that it simply has to give an account for how everything began, where everything came from, including us, why there is anything that exists, why there is a reality at all. 
A worldview has to give an answer for that. Secondly, the fall is that it has to describe the problem. Everybody knows there's something wrong with the world. Nobody looks at the world and goes, you know what, this is awesome. Everything's going exactly the way as it should be. Absolutely nothing wrong, nothing to see here. Everyone knows that something is catastrophically wrong with the world, and if we're honest with us, a worldview has to account for why that is. Thirdly, redemption. Redemption is the solution. A worldview has to explain what we're supposed to do about what's wrong with the world and what's wrong with us. And then restoration is it has to describe what the world would look like once that repair took place. But put in personal terms, worldviews help us answer the basic questions that we each struggle with sooner or later in our lives if we take the time to stop and think about the really important things. Where did we come from? What is our problem? What is the solution? And how are things gonna end for us? What happens after death? Worldviews are also like puzzles. They're made up of individual pieces that fit together to form one big picture. And it's only when all the pieces are put together that you can really see and perceive the big picture. But if you're missing pieces, or you try to mix in pieces from a different puzzle, you're never going to see the picture clearly. You can't, for example, take a puzzle piece of a worldview like the unique value of human beings. So in in the Christian worldview, human beings have a unique value. This is actually the foundation for human rights is the Christian belief that humans are unique and they have unique value. You can't take that puzzle piece of Christianity and push it into the Hindu worldview. It will not fit. It won't work. You might choose to write it down in your notepad of personal beliefs, but again, if you stop and look for just a second, you'll see that they cannot fit together. In the same way, reincarnation makes sense in Hinduism, but it doesn't make sense in Christianity. There's no place for that puzzle piece in the Christian worldview. It's like trying to put a carburetor on a computer. When you try to assemble a worldview for yourself from different puzzles, from different worldviews, different belief systems, it doesn't take very long to realize that the picture doesn't make any sense at all. A worldview has to make sense when it's all put together. And the overwhelming majority of people have a worldview that's either incomplete or they have a worldview that's incompatible and they haven't even realized that their actual personal beliefs don't even fit together. A worldview is also interestingly, most interestingly, like a story. Because when you think about it, every story, if it's a good one, has four parts. And dad, this is gold. When your little kid says, like, tell me a story, and you're like, oh, there was a princess, and she got kidnapped, and she got rescued, the end. If you, if you want to know the structure, how you come up with a story, tune in. Because this is, first tip is you always put your kid in the story. I hope you know that. You always put your kid in the story. There's a princess and her name was, and then you wait, and then you say, like their name, Lolo. It's like, oh, that's great. You always put your kid in the story. That's a pro tip. But if you want to tell a good story, it's got to have four parts. It has a beginning that sets the stage. It introduces you to the main characters, and it gets the story rolling. But the story only gets compelling when something goes wrong. There's a conflict that makes the story interesting. And the main part of a good story is how that conflict gets resolved, how it gets corrected, how the problem gets fixed. And that solution brings a final resolution, which the writers generally call the denouement, 
where the parts of the plot all come together in a satisfying ending and get resolved. That's the happily ever after moment. And maybe you've noticed that the basic parts of a good story actually match up with the basic parts of a worldview. You have the beginning, which is creation. You have conflict, which is the fall. You have conflict resolution, which is redemption. And you have the ending, which is restoration. And the Christian story is like many other great stories in that it deals with all the great issues all people struggle with and all the big questions that everyone asks. It's a story about peace shattered by rebellion, about love and betrayal, about self-sacrifice and about redemption. All of our deepest aspirations, all of our longings, all of our hopes and even our struggles, all the conflicts in all of history are tied to this story that is the Christian worldview. If you want to put it another way, Christianity is the story of how the world began, why the world is the way it is, what role we play in the drama, and how all the plot lines of the story will be resolved in the end. So let's get into it. Let's take a look at the Christian worldview, the story of God, really. It begins with creation. And our story doesn't begin with the phrase, once upon a time. It begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the reason is, it's not a fairy tale. It's quite real. And we also find that in our story, God is the first piece because the story is all about him. God is the central character. The Christian story doesn't start with us because the story is not about us. It's about God. Science recognizes that the universe had a beginning. There was a moment when atoms and energy and matter and time and gravity as we know them began to exist. We all know, however young or however old we are, whatever our level of education, we all know that something cannot come from nothing. You know this if you're a parent and your kid leaves socks in the middle of the floor. You're not buying it if they say, listen, I know nothing about them. I know they look like my socks, but... Here's the thing, they materialized out of thin air. As we know, this happens all the time. Nobody's buying that because we all intrinsically know it's impossible for something to come from nothing. Thermodynamics tells us that no new energy can actually be created in the universe. We know that consciousness cannot derive from unconsciousness no matter how much time you give it to develop. We know that order does not naturally arise from disorder, but again, thermodynamics tells us that the entire universe is moving toward entropy. The entire universe is moving from order toward chaos like your teenager's bedroom. This is why the Bible says that one of the two evidences of God that pretty much every person experiences is the creation of God all around us. We have evidence of order and design our ability to even use our consciousness to ask the question, why are we here, is evidence of a designer because consciousness can't come from unconsciousness. There's overwhelming evidence all around us that the universe has a designer and a creator and is not an accident. And by simple logic, the creator of our universe must be greater than the natural laws of our universe. So if the creator of our universe created things like energy and time and matter and gravity, he must transcend all of those things too. He must be timeless himself. He must be able to be both material and immaterial. He must be able to transcend all the laws that he put into place. 
And God doesn't create like we do in the Christian worldview. You see, we create with raw materials. If we create a painting, we're still painting on a canvas that came from things that already existed. We're using paint that was made with materials that already exist on the earth. But God is different. God creates from absolutely nothing. He creates with no raw materials. He creates the very things that the universe are made out of. He creates with no limitations at all. And at the center of his creation, God created us, men and women, specifically the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve. And they were not like anything else in all creation. Man and woman were created in the image of God. The Latin term is imago Dei. If you want to start a Christian metal band, that's a good name, Imago Dei. Okay. And what it means is that humans were created to bear, we were created to carry the image of God. In other words, we were created to be enough like God to be able to interact with him and have a genuine relationship with him. And part of that meant that he gave us a spirit which would live forever because he is an eternal being himself. So he gave us a spirit that would live forever like him. God didn't create us out of any need that he had. He's God, he has no needs. He wasn't lonely or bored. He created us because he's good and one of the aspects of God's goodness is a desire to share and God desired to share himself with us as we desire to share ourselves and our lives with our own children. If you've been here for a while, you've heard me share this before. None of us had kids because we needed to, right? Like none of us said, you know what? I have got way too much free time. I gotta do something about this. Kids, I'll have kids. None of us said, man, you know, I've got way too much extra money. Like, like, like what am I gonna do about this problem? I'll have some kids. Or I gotta tell you, man, rough week. All this uninterrupted sleep is getting really, really old. We gotta have some kids. We gotta do something about this, babe. None of us needed kids. None of us needed kids. But something in us loved the idea of sharing our lives and ourselves with children. And we get that desire from God because we're made in his image. God didn't need us, but he wanted to share himself with us. And so God created Adam and Eve and he put them in what can only be described as paradise. He put them on an earth that was perfect. They didn't have to work. Trees and the ground just produced everything they needed to eat automatically. And here's the incredible part. Eating plants was actually delicious at that time. Being a vegetarian was actually desirable. It was incredible. There were, there were no diseases. There were no predators in the animal kingdom. The climate was ideal. They'd simply lie down on the ground and sleep at night. No mosquitoes or insects to bite them. Nothing like that. And their days were spent exploring, learning, and interacting with God as they enjoyed his creation. And God gave Adam the title deed, so to speak, of the earth. In other words, he gave Adam ownership of the earth. He put him in charge of it and said, take care of it, enjoy it, develop it, explore it. Nothing was broken. Everything was perfect, including Adam and Eve. They didn't even have broken thoughts or broken emotions. They never suspected each other of anything malicious. They never had an unkind or selfish thought or desire. They had absolutely no insecurities whatsoever. They were were pure, absolutely pure. And to top it all off, there's no death in the world at this time. No death. 
of any kind, of any sort. That was the world that God made. That's the world that God gave to us. And so now we move to the next stage of the story, the fall, what went wrong. Because to state the obvious, you may have noticed the world is no longer as I described to you. It is no longer as it was when it was given to Adam. And no matter what we believe, we all have that deep inner awareness that the world is not the way that it ought to be, that something has gone terribly wrong and everyone knows it. And this is just one philosophical way in which atheism doesn't work, it doesn't make sense. Because if there is no God, and we're just living in a purely physical universe made up of random matter and atoms, then the idea that things are not the way they should be makes absolutely no sense. If there is no God, then there is no way things should be. Things can't go wrong because there's no way things should be. How can something go wrong when there's no right way for it to be in the first place? But this is revealed because even the atheists will declare that there are things wrong in the world and injustices in the world. And you can't even claim that anything is wrong, any action is wrong if there's no right way that things should be. So even when the atheist says, oh, there's no God because there's so much evil in the world, you can't even call something evil without having a standard for good. And you can't have a standard for good unless everyone understands that there's a way things should be and the world doesn't look like that. If there is no God, there is no way things should be. The world just is what it is. And yet we all know things are not as they should be. So what went wrong with the world? Well, well, we did. We did. Any meaningful relationship is based on love. And love can only exist when there's free will to behind the decision to love. Love has no significance, no meaning, unless there's an option to not love. There is no such thing as love when you program something to love you. It's not love, it's following programming. There is no such thing as love when someone is forced to love against their will. They're being manipulated, they're being abused, and it's a crime in our culture. And so when God created Adam and Eve, he gave them free will because the goal was a relationship based on love. And he created free will in a very interesting way. He had to create the option for them to not do what he said, to not love him, to reject his authority over their life. So he put one tree in this garden that Adam and Eve were in. He put one tree in there and he said, guys, you can go anywhere you want. You can do anything you want but you cannot eat from that one tree. If you eat from that one tree, you will die. You say, well, why does he do that? Simply to give them the option. Now there's free will. They have the option. They had the choice to obey and trust the God who had only ever been good to them or by a single action to reject God's authority over their lives and instead choose to be their own authority, to choose to be their own God and put their desires above God's desires for them. Now, no matter how you were raised, you're probably familiar with what happens next in the story. A tempter shows up in the garden, the enemy of God, Satan, and he appeals to Eve's ego and pride. And she takes the bait and has Adam join her in eating this forbidden fruit. And that decision changes the whole world, the whole universe. 
Because it wasn't about eating fruit. It was really about rejecting God and saying, God, no matter how much good you give me, I'd still rather be my own God than serve you. And one of the truths that the Bible and life teach us is that every single one of us would have made the same decision if we were in that situation. Every single one of us would have rejected God. Every single one of us would have given in to temptation because there's just something in each of us that is drawn toward rebellion against God. And so before we can move on with the story, we need to pause and make sure we understand the seriousness of what's just taken place with Adam and Eve. Why this can't be just a slap on the wrist because if we don't get the seriousness of their situation and ours, the rest of the story is not gonna make much sense. In this story, everything belongs to God. Everything belongs to God. And it's a common sense principle. It's this idea. If you make it, it's yours. If you create it, it's yours. Since God made everything out of nothing, it all belongs to him. He has ownership of it. He has proper authority to rule over it all because none of it would even exist without him. That includes you and me, by the way. We don't own ourselves. God does, or he should. Therefore, when we claim absolute ownership over anything, our lives, our time, our money, our gifts, our resources, our talents. When we claim absolute ownership over anything without understanding that God holds the ultimate rights of ownership, it's very much like stealing. And so when Adam and Eve rejected God's authority over their lives by eating the forbidden fruit, they were stealing from God by claiming ownership of themselves when in reality they belonged to their creator. They belonged to God. And instead of having God rule their lives, they were kicking him off the throne of their lives and sitting in it themselves. They put their will above God's will and in doing that, they put themselves above God. Are you beginning to grasp the the seriousness of their seemingly simple act? The seriousness is underscored by the consequences of their actions and those consequences were, were in a word catastrophic. Because a God who's perfectly good has to deal with that which is not good. We all have a desire for justice that's hardwired in us. It's another of those traits that comes from being made in the image of God. It's why we are bothered when we read about rapists and child abusers being released from jail after only a few years or a few months. It's why we get angry when we hear about people abusing positions of authority and using them to exploit others. There's this sense of justice in you and I, an idea of right and wrong, an innate understanding and hunger to see justice to see the wrong things in the world dealt with. And that sense of justice comes from being made in the image of God. Justice is part of the character of God and he put that same character in each of us. But here's where things get very problematic. Our idea of justice is based on our level of morality. In other words, as a society, we got together and we agreed upon things that are acceptable and unacceptable. And we made laws against the things and behaviors that we decided were unacceptable. So we got together and we said, you know what? It's not acceptable to plan someone's murder and kill them. We all agree, we all agree that's a crime and we come up with a punishment. We don't make it a crime to lie. Because we got together and somebody said like, hey, maybe we should make lying against the law. And everyone was like, 
yeah, I don't see any of us living up to that standard, so we're not going to do that. No law against lying or gossiping. That's why we don't have laws against lying or gossiping for the most part. And so we come up with our laws and our moral standards as a society based on our morality. We look at each other, we get together, and we figure out what a reasonable standard of morality is based on our ability to live up to it. We all understand and believe that that's a right that every society, every city, every country should have. But now expand that idea out to God. He's perfect. That's his moral standard. So he comes up with laws based on the moral standard of perfection. So God's laws are actually very, very simple. Very simple. There's really just one. Be perfect. Be perfect. Why? Because he is perfect. Just like we say it's not acceptable to murder because we're confident that we can go through life not murdering someone, God is able to say, no, my moral standard is you should be perfect because I've existed for eternity. I've been perfect the whole time. I can live up to that standard. So he has a right to set that as his standard and he has a right to judge us to that standard. Our standards of morality in our culture are based on our morality. God's standards are based on his morality. And every violation of God's standard of perfection is what we call sin. And this is usually where you might be thinking, now, now wait a minute, Jeff, wait a minute. This is not fair. Are you telling me that the God of the universe expects me to be perfect? That is so unfair because it's absolutely impossible. We can't live up to it. You're absolutely right about that. But here's why it's also not unfair. He made men and women perfect. He made Adam and Eve perfect. He put them in a perfect world. He gave them everything they needed to live up to his standard. All they had to do was choose to follow him and trust him. That's it. And they couldn't do it. And so when Adam and Eve messed up, that passed on to every single one of us. And every single one of us has been born into sin, as the Bible says. We've been born flawed ever since then. And again, just remember that if we had been Adam and Eve, we would have done the same thing sooner or later. There's no solution here that involves a time machine, okay? We all would have done the same thing. So we have, a, we have a serious, serious problem. We find ourselves in the crosshairs of God's judgment. We've all fallen short of his standard of perfection. And we have no way to fix things. No way to fix things. And many people think, you know what? I'm ready to stand before God. I'm a good person, I'm not, I'm not worried about it. I live my life as a good person. But what they really mean is, compared to other people, I think I'm better than most. Like top 10%. I'm nice, I'm reasonably kind. It's been a long time since I've stabbed someone. I don't generally commit major criminal offenses. So when people say, I'm a good person, what they mean is compared to other people. Like there's a lot of people I know who aren't as good a person as me. But that approach is based on an assumption. It's based on the assumption that when we get to eternity and we stand before God, God is going to compare us to other people. But the Bible says that's not what's going to happen. We're going to be held to his standard of moral perfection. In other words, we're gonna be compared to him. He's the standard. And when you realize he's the standard, none of us can say, well, I'm a good person. Which is why the Bible says there's no one good. No one's good except God. 
And so as we move into the sentencing phase, under God's system of justice, we're all guilty. We're all convicted. And the question becomes, what's the appropriate and fair punishment for rejecting God? What's appropriate and fair for spitting in the face of your creator? For trying to kick the God of the universe off the throne of your life and saying, I should be God instead of you. It is, if you come to true understanding, it is the worst crime anyone could commit. Worse than anything you could do on the earth. Because a crime becomes worse the more innocent the person is against whom the crime is committed. This is why a crime against a child is worse than a crime against an adult. Because the more innocent the victim of the crime, the more heinous the crime becomes. And God is not just innocent, he is perfect. He has only ever been good. He has never wronged anyone in any way. It's the most egregious crime we could possibly commit and we've all done it. So it's a terrifying question to begin to ponder. So what's an appropriate punishment for our sin? What should the wrath of God against our sin look like? What form should it take? And in addition to that horrifying question, there's another equally awful issue at play. Because God is perfect, he cannot even be in the presence of that which is not perfect. Just as there are certain types of criminals that you and I could never be friends with, God's moral standard of perfection makes sin even more repulsive to him. He cannot be around it. He cannot tolerate it. So our relationship with God is destroyed by our sin. The very relationship that we were created for, our whole reason for being, that relationship is lost. God's judgment of our sin will take place after our earthly life is over and when he renders his verdict against our sin, it has to include us being separated from him for eternity because he cannot be around sinners, that's you and I. God is the source of all love, all peace, all joy, all hope, all rest, everything good. Even if you don't believe in God, you experience his goodness every time you experience something good in your life that ultimately came from God. And so eternal separation from God means separation from the only source in existence of all love, all joy, all peace, all hope, all pleasure, all rest, everything good, being separated from the source of that forever. Eternal separation from God is what makes hell, hell. And it's what we deserve because we're all guilty of the sin we're charged with. So now we cut back to Adam and Eve and now we understand the seriousness of them rebelling against God in the garden. They commit the first sins in the history of the world and when they do that, something catastrophic happens. Sin enters the world and perfection in the world is broken. By choosing to follow Satan and sin, Adam hands the title deed of the world over to Satan. And brokenness enters the world. Suddenly diseases come into existence. Animals begin to devour each other and even seek to devour people. The ground now produces things like weeds and man has to work to get the ground to produce food. Being a vegetarian becomes awful. People become broken in their thinking and desires. Things like 
Jealousy and bitterness begin springing up in the hearts and minds of people. Thoughts of violence and exploitation begin to fill our minds. And most importantly, death enters the world. And here's what we must understand at this point in our story. The world is broken because we broke it. We are broken because we broke ourselves. We flippantly toss around accusations and questions regarding the reality of God and the goodness of God because we see evil and brokenness all around us. But the truth is this is not the world that God gave us. The world God gave us was perfect. The way God made us was perfect. The reality is that our brokenness is entirely our doing. And we are in a hopeless situation. The end. Well, in order for any good story to have a soaring crescendo, one has to be brought to a place of understanding the bleakness and hopelessness of the low point. The darker the darkness, the more contrast is created when the light breaks through. And that's where we are in our story. We must understand the bad news in order to appreciate the good news. And there's very good news coming. As we move into the redemption part of our story, the next several chapters are chronicled by what's known as the Old Testament in the Bible. It chronicles several thousand years of time following Adam and Eve falling from perfection into sin. And one of the things that takes place in the Old Testament is that God gives man a list of rules and practices. The most famous of these is the Ten Commandments. And what makes these so important is that they detail specifically how a man would need to live every moment of his life in order to actually live up to God's standard of perfection. So what it's doing, very interestingly, is God gives all these instructions and laws to man that answer the question, what is a good person? If a person wants to say, I'm a good person, what does that mean? So God says, well, well here you go. If you wanna try and be good on your own, just try and be a really good person, try and be a perfect person, here's what you have to do. These hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of little laws and details governing every part of your life and the way you do everything in life. Do these without failure and you can earn your way to heaven by being a good person. You can meet the standards of God. So how did it go? How did man do it trying to follow all of God's rules and earn his way to heaven? Well. One of the recurring themes of the Old Testament is simply man's repeated failure to come anywhere even remotely close to keeping God's laws. They fail over and over and over again because we can't meet God's standards. It's a hopeless situation. In fact, in the New Testament, a guy named the Apostle Paul would later write, the whole point of all those laws was to prove that none of us can actually live up to God's standards. That was the whole point. In fact, we learn later on, again in the New Testament, that God isn't only interested in what we do, God's actually interested in what goes on in our minds. So even if we say, well, you know what, I lived really well, I never cheated on my spouse, we find out in the Bible that God's idea of good is, well, actually, you know, if you even ever had a lustful thought about someone other than your spouse, it's just as bad as adultery in the eyes of God. You begin to realize just how high God's standard of perfection goes. He says, if you've ever had a, a hateful thought towards someone, that's as bad as murder. Because every murder starts with a hateful thought. 
So we learn that we just need to throw out the idea that we're ever gonna be a good person, that we're just gonna do it on our own and make good choices, it's never gonna happen. And so we're still stuck in this hopeless situation. We're separated from God. We've lost the very creation we were created for. We're destined to spend eternity separated from God, the only source of everything good. What happens next is so unexpected. It's so unbelievable. I'm not exaggerating when I say I, I find this shocking to this day. I've, I've never been able to just get over this because if you're reading this as a story, what happens next is not something anyone could even come up with or suggest. It's so far beyond that. The good news is that if we travel all the way back to before the beginning of the universe, before the world was made, we were created by God for a relationship with him and he created us for the purpose of loving us. He created us for the purpose of loving us. So all the way back before anything was made, the hope we have is that God loved us. He loved us. And he planned on loving us even when we rejected him even when we were separated from him. In fact, he knew exactly what we would do before he made the earth. He knew we'd reject him. And he knew that in any scenario in which he created beings with free will, they would reject him, they would rebel. And knowing that, he still loved us and he still created us. So loving is God that he came up with a plan to save us from the sin he knew that we'd commit. And to come up with that plan, God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who are collectively God, they worked backwards, starting with the end goal. And the end goal is that the story would end with us, with God, in heaven forever. And they wrote that last page of the story, right at the beginning, before anything else was set into motion. They said, this is how it's gonna end. And there were two catastrophic problems that needed to be solved by whatever plan they would come up with. Firstly, it was incredibly obvious, man could not live the perfect life that he needed to live to meet God's standard. Secondly, God's justice demanded that man's sin be dealt with. It had to be punished, justice demands it. And so among the Trinity, they came up with a plan that was scandalous and they decided that it would be acceptable for someone to be a substitute for all of humanity for every woman for every man every child who has ever lived but that person would have to be completely innocent themselves they couldn't be guilty of sin they couldn't have lived an imperfect life because remember what we said we said that the more innocent a person the more heinous a crime so if someone completely innocent said, I'll be a substitute for humanity, that person with complete innocence would have such value in God's moral system that they could be an acceptable substitute for everybody else. So Jesus, the Son of God, puts on human flesh, gives up all the privileges of being God, and comes to the earth as a man. This is the plan they come up with. 
And I can say that as a sentence, but you could spend your life pondering how absolutely incredible that is and, and never fully wrap your head around it because it's, it's not just neat, it's, it's sublime. It's beyond anything that we could come up with. And the plan was that he would live a perfect life in our place. And then he would be punished for our sins in our place. It was a plot twist that, that nobody could have seen coming unless God had revealed it to them. Who could even conceive the idea of God coming down to his creation, living among them as one of them, without any indication for most of his life that he was God. Being teased as a child, being mocked, preaching the truth that he was God and having people reject him and laugh at him for it. Who could conceive of the idea of, of the creator coming down to his creation so that he could be murdered by them and being murdered by them save them. So Jesus came and he lived the perfect life in our place. And he took the wrath of God against our sin in our place. And so the picture is this. This was the plan that was put into place before the world was made. Instead of God just immediately dealing with our sin, instead of immediately dealing with Adam and Eve's sin and yours and mine, all that sin, past, present, future, for the whole lifespan of the earth would be stored up like wine being poured into a cup. And then Jesus would drink that whole cup, all of the punishment, for all of time, for every person. One man punished on behalf of all men. At any point during the horror of Jesus' torture and crucifixion, he could have called down countless angels. He could have called down heaven itself to kill everyone who was killing him and carry him up to heaven on their shoulders. But he didn't do it. He didn't do it. Jesus said, no man takes my life from me, but I lay it down. You see, it wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross. It was his love for you. That's what kept him there. And when Jesus was tied to a post and, and beaten and whipped to the point that his spine and internal organs became visible, he wasn't held in place by ropes, but he stayed in place because his arms were really wrapped around you. And he was taking one blow after another for you shielding you from the wrath of God. And when he's on the cross, he cries out these famous words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, Jesus was in our place and he became all of our sin. And so the father that he had been connected to for all eternity couldn't even look at him because he became us, he became our sin. And for the first time in eternity, Jesus was absolutely on his own, disconnected from the Father and the Spirit. When Jesus died, he had lived the perfect life in our place. He had taken the punishment for our sin, but, but he was dead. He was dead. Everything he had done and was doing was in our place. So if sin killed Jesus, then we would still be dead when we died. We wouldn't have any punishment coming our way, but we would just be dead. It would be like, congratulations, your house is paid off, but you've also been evicted from your house and you're now homeless. So our debt would have been settled, but that would have been it. 
Because if Jesus is dead, then we're dead too. But that's not where the story ends. It's Easter Sunday and we're celebrating the fact that Jesus rose from the dead in victory over death, which means that not only is our sin paid for, but that he's powerful enough that sin itself, death itself, cannot kill him. And so because Jesus was able to rise again, free from sin, into a new life, a new start, being made whole and new, so can we. So can we. And it's all possible because Jesus lived, died, and rose again in our place. Which leads us to the final part of our story. We're almost done. The restoration. Each of us has a choice to make. Either we accept Jesus as our substitute, and we say, Jesus lived and died and rose again in my place. Or we say, I don't need Jesus. I'll stand before God and I'll be judged on my own life one day. The first path leads to life. The other leads to eternal separation from God. Because nobody's good. Nobody can meet God's standards. And so I want to be 100% clear. You need to accept Jesus as the one who lived and died and rose again in your place. You need to, but you need to know that it's a package deal. You cannot sincerely accept God's forgiveness for rejecting him as God without also turning to him and accepting him as God. In other words, you can't say, God, I'm sorry for rejecting you as God, please forgive me. Now I'm gonna go do that same thing again. I still don't actually want you as my God. I just wanna be forgiven of the fact that I don't want you as my God. Doesn't work that way. The deal is that as he switches your track record with Jesus' track record, as God switches your sin with Jesus' perfection, you trade your life for the life of Jesus. You can't repent for taking ownership of your life without returning ownership of your life to God. And so again, I, I wanna be 100% clear. To receive everything that Jesus has done for you, to receive the forgiveness that he won for you on the cross, you need to give your life over to God. You cannot accept him as your savior and substitute without also accepting him as your God. And when you agree to that exchange, here's what happens, you immediately find yourself back in the relationship that you were created for. And you begin to discover the, the purpose, the meaning, and the significance that you've been searching for in life is not a position, a place, or an accomplishment. It's him. It's him. And you begin to realize that the home that you've been looking for your whole life is not a place. It's him. It's him. And when you give your life to Jesus, your spirit, that part of you that will live forever, becomes new. It's freed from the brokenness caused by your sin. Now for the time being, we're still stuck in a broken body with broken minds, but we'll get new ones when our earthly life is over. But right now, you can have a renewed spirit. And as God's spirit comes into yours, he goes to work in your life, doing this work of healing, working in your life towards making you whole. And the Bible says that work is gonna be finished when we leave this planet, when we die, and we wake up in the presence of God and every part of us is going to be new. St. Augustine said it better than I ever could. He said, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord. 
and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. He said, you've made us for yourself, our Lord, and our hearts are restless until we find our rest in you. And so I'll end with this. Why do, why do people not accept the story? I think there's really only two reasons. If you're here and you haven't accepted this or if you're listening to this online or watching it and you haven't given your life to Jesus, it's because of one of two things. Either there's denial, there's the person who looks at the universe all around them and says, this is just random. There's no intelligence behind this. It's all just chance. And the Bible would say that's just willing denial. You don't see because you don't want to see. You're not interested in God being in charge of your life. There's denial, but the other reason is distraction. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. So much of the time, we mistake meaning and purpose in life for a temporary distraction. And so you find, I find this all the time, people begin to ask these big questions. They begin to look at their worldview because something in their life is not fulfilling them the way they thought it would. Their marriage isn't making them happy the way they thought they would. That dream job, that dream house, that dream lifestyle, it's, it's not fulfilling them. And so you begin to ask these questions about the meaning of life. And then what happens so often is there's just another distraction. And suddenly we say, well, yeah, but, but maybe if I get an even better house, then, then, then I'll find what I'm looking for. And there's 10 years of your life gone. And you think that you're chasing significance and meaning and purpose, but you're just chasing a distraction. Or we say, well, well sure, I, I don't feel satisfied in life. I don't feel like I, I have everything that I need. I feel like something's missing, but, but maybe, maybe, you know, when we have some kids, then I'll find that. 10 more years of distraction. And you find at the end of every distraction that it's not what you hoped it would be. Don't be in denial and don't settle for a distraction. Every single one of us is here because God loved us enough that he wanted us to hear about his love for us. So with that, let's pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for telling us the story of reality. Thank you for revealing to us the way the world really is and why the world is the way that it is and how it all fits together. Uh, Father, whoever we are, whatever's going on in our lives, we, we understand that the world is broken and, and that we're broken and that we can't fix ourselves. We can't make ourselves truly happy and satisfied. And so, Father, we understand that what we're looking for is found in a relationship with you. So, Father, I ask that you would help us to just fully give over control of our lives to you, knowing that as we do that in every area of life, we will find that, that peace that we're looking for, that joy that we're looking for, the love, the hope, the rest that we're looking for. So just speak to us, God. Speak to every heart in the room right now and let us know what you want to do in us and in our lives. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says, The Gospel. 
Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.